Let us pray. Dear God, we are dependent upon you for our very lives. For it is by your love and your power that we have the breath of life this morning. But not only have you given us life, you, motivated by your love, has given us eternal life through the belief in your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you that those of us who have entrusted ourselves into the loving person of Jesus Christ, we have the free gift of salvation. And your Holy Spirit now resides in us. We ask that you help us to reflect upon these truths this morning, that it may cause us to embrace you at a deeper level and live for you sacrificially at a deeper level. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Now this morning, I'll be preaching a sermon entitled Peace Found in Christ. And this sermon will be based on scriptures found in the book of John, chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. So please open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 14, verses 26 through 28. And I'll start out by reading in verse 18, as Jesus Christ promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples and seeks to comfort them with these words. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. And these are the words that I'll be expounding today. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, those faithful words were written by the Apostle John. And before I explain the riches of those truths, I'd like to just give you a brief overview of the setting that led into those words 
of comfort being spoken by Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, the Apostle John wrote this very gospel, and he wrote it in order to prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that by believing in him, you receive the free gift of salvation. And John goes about accomplishing these proofs by giving us detailed and extensive accounts of Jesus Christ's life and his ministry while he was here on earth. And as a part of those accounts, we find the one that we have here in chapter 14, to where Jesus Christ is in the upper room with his disciples exactly one day before he goes to the cross on Calvary. And as we peer into this room, we find that his disciples, they're in a state of despondency. They're confused. They're anxious. They're hurt because they have recently gone from the highest point of their messianic hopes to its absolute lowest point. Because just a few days before, as Jesus Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover, as he rode in on that donkey in fulfillment of the prophecies that were foretold by those Old Testament prophets, those disciples believed that this was the beginning of the Messianic era. When Jesus Christ would assume the kingship of, of Israel, when he would become its king, restore its sovereignty, free them from the Roman oppression that they were under, and then expand their dominion throughout the world, only to receive the news from Jesus Christ himself a few days later that he, their beloved Messiah, was going to die. And this came as a complete shock to the disciples because nowhere in their understanding of messianic theology did they come to comprehend that the Messiah must die. So they became despondent. They became anxious. They were hurt. They were confused because they came to realize that they would be losing their beloved master, their teacher, their comforter. And Jesus Christ, although he faced the cross on Calvary the next day, although he faced the agony of the cross of being separated from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity, his focus was not on himself. His focus was on those disciples and how hurt they were. So he sought to comfort them with these words that we find in John 14, 26 through 28. And he opens up to them and says in 14, 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, when he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, here he's identifying the overarching foundational goal and objective and function of the Holy Spirit. He identifies him as the helper, the one who would come and help them in the same way that Jesus Christ, their beloved master, had helped them. He would be their comforter. He would be their guide. He would be their provider. He would be their teacher. And after he comforts them with those words, he goes on to identify that the, hel that the helper is the very spirit of God. And those disciples, knowledgeable about Old Testament theology, 
concerning the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Holy Spirit came upon representatives of God, they knew that the Holy Spirit empowered them to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. So this came as a great comfort to them, that they would be receiving the very Holy Spirit of God. And after Jesus Christ establishes these truths to those disciples, he goes on to say, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And when Jesus Christ says, whom the Father will send in my name, here he's explaining to those disciples that God the Father has entered into a covenant with he, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that once he completes his earthly ministry, once he atones for the sins of all the elect believers in the world, that he will then ascend into heaven to the right hand of God, and then God would send his very spirit to those disciples and to every sincere believer in Jesus Christ, including us. So when Jesus Christ says the Father will send the Holy Spirit in his name, he is indicating that the Father has promised to send the Holy Spirit on his behalf as his representative. And in the same way that Jesus Christ came as a representative of God the Father, in the same way that Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, testified to the greatness of the Father, the truth of the Father, the love of the Father, the power of the Father, the peace of the Father, the plan of the Father. In that same way, the Holy Spirit was coming to be a representative of Jesus Christ and to testify about the truth of Jesus Christ, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the promised son of God, that he was the promised savior of the world, that he was the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the prince of peace, the only name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. This is what Jesus Christ is attesting to here. And he speaks to that truth in other sections of the Bible, as in John 15, verse 26. Please turn your Bibles to John 15, verse 26. And when John... 15, verse 26, you will see Jesus Christ speaking about the coming Holy Spirit. And he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So here Jesus Christ further affirms the truth that when the Holy Spirit comes, he is coming to witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the great I Am, the one who lived the perfect life and therefore was an acceptable sacrifice to God, the only one who could appease the wrath of God that God had stored up for each and every one of us who sinned and rebelled against his holy law. And this is what Jesus Christ is affirming when he says, whom the Father will send in my name. And after he comforts those disciples with those reverent truths, he goes on to say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things when he explains to them that the Holy Spirit will teach them all things, he is indicating to them that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be their resident teacher. He will literally indwell them 
and be their indwelling guide. For the scriptures point to the fact that it is the Holy Spirit that guides us into the understanding of the Holy Scriptures. So this is what Jesus Christ is speaking to. The fact that the Holy Spirit will illumine the minds of those disciples and each and every one of us today who are sincere believers in God. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us a deep understanding of the rich truths of God's scriptures, the rich truths of all of his principles and precepts from Genesis on to Revelation, the very God-breathed words that we have as a part of the Holy Canon. It is the Holy Spirit that we must look to for guidance for understanding, and for a deep knowledge of those truths, that it may well up into us, into a greater love for God, and a greater obedience and submission to him. And after Jesus Christ comforts them with those very truths, he goes on to say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, when Jesus Christ speaks those words, when he speaks that promise, it's not a promise that he's giving to every disciple in that upper room. It's not a promise that he's giving to each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Those particular words, that particular promise was a promise specifically given to the apostles and their close associates. For that is a promise of receiving divine revelation from God. That is a promise of receiving divine inspiration from God. That is a promise that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he would indwell those apostles and their close associates and cause them to remember all that Jesus Christ taught them in an inerrant manner, in a perfect manner, in a comprehensive manner, that they could then go about recording those very truths as a part of the New Testament. And that's exactly what happened. That promise was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost as they were gathered in that room and waiting for him. And he indwelt those apostles and their close associates. And they went on to record the very words of the Holy Canon that we hold as a part of the New Testament today. And this process of the Holy Spirit guiding them into those truths it's affirmed in other parts of the Bible, such as in 1 Peter 1.20. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1.20. 1 now there in 1 Peter, you'll see an affirmation of that divine process, that divine plan that God instituted for the reception and the recording of his holy scriptures. But there in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter says... Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. But men who spoke from God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So those prophecies did not come by the will of man, as it says. Those prophecies came by the will of God as they were spoken by him. And those prophets, those apostles were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is how we have come to behold the very God-breathed words that we have in our possession today. It is by the Holy Spirit empowering and enabling each and every one of those 
appointed apostles and their close associates to record his holy scriptures. What a great blessing. What a, what a great honor for God, the transcendent one, to give us his very word that in our time of need, we may turn to it and we may understand it. We may embrace it and be blessed by it. Amen? Well, after Jesus Christ explains those truths to those disciples, he goes on in verse 27, and he says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, when he says, Peace I leave with you, Jesus Christ is emphasizing the fact that he, the Son of God, is giving each and every one of those disciples and us in this day and time peace with God that only comes through believing in Jesus Christ. This is peace that only comes through submission to God, through accepting his Son as your Lord and Savior. For before every human being accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Word of God says that they are sinners. They are literally enemies of God because each and every human being is born with a sinful nature. And sin is defined in the Bible as rebellion against God's laws, as rebellion against his holy standards, as a rebellion against his righteous standards. And each and every one of us, from the day that we are born, we're born into that rebellion. We reject living according to God's word. We reject living according to his holy standards. And because of that, James says in chapter 4, verse 4, that we are enemies of God. For he says, whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And being a friend of the world points to the fact that you have chosen to live according to the values of the world, according to the philosophy of the world, which is governed by Satan this evil world system that we live in. And because of that rebellion, each and every human being, from the time that they are born, up until the point that they accept Jesus Christ, they wage war against God. They wage war against his righteousness. And the psalmist attests to this truth in Psalm 51.5. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 51.5. Uh, you will see in Psalm 51.5 that Psalm is declaring the state that he was in from the time that he was in his mother's womb and he was born. In Psalm 51.5, the psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother did conceive me. So this points to the truth that each and every one of us was born in sin. While we were in our mother's womb, we were conceived in sin. We were born in sin. And as we exited and grew, we rebelled against God. And God has stored up his wrath for that rebellion. And as we wage war against him, the plan that God devised to bring a treaty between him and us 
is the plan of redemption by belief in Jesus Christ. And it is only then that we are brought to a position of peace with God. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's when God declares us not guilty of our rebellion, not guilty of our sins. That's when he justifies us. That's when he frees us, frees us and gives us freedom in him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through, through the shed blood of the perfect sacrifice that he was. We are credited with his perfect righteousness. We're imputed with his perfect righteousness. And thereby, at peace with God. And this is the peace, amen, is right, that each and every one of us has by believing in Jesus Christ. And this is the peace that Jesus Christ is speaking about when he told those disciples and us, peace, I leave with you. And after he comforts them with those truths, he says, my peace I give to you. Now here, Jesus Christ draws a distinction between peace with God and the peace of God. Here he's speaking about the peace of God. He's speaking about his divine peace, and he's indicating to those disciples and to us that he gives us his divine peace, his enduring peace, his everlasting peace, his eternal peace, his transcendent peace, that peace that that Paul spoke about in Philippians 4, 7, that my dear brother Brent replied to me and responded to me, that peace that goes, that surpasses all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard within that very verse is derived from a Greek word, which is a military term that means to protect or to keep watch over. So when the apostle Paul spoke those truths to his Philippian brothers in Christ and told them to rejoice for they were in possession of the peace that surpasses all human understanding and that it would guard them, their hearts and their minds. He's speaking to the fact that when we have the Prince of Peace living with us, when we have the very peace of Jesus Christ, it guards us and protects us from being overwhelmed by the challenges in this world. It protects us from anxiety It protects us from worrying. It protects us from all the suffering that we experience, all the pain that we experience. It protects us and enables us to remain in peace. It enables us to remain calm when our jobs are on the line, when our finances are on the line, when our relationships are on the line. We can rest in the peace of God for Jesus Christ himself has given us his very peace. This is a tremendous blessing that he extends to each and every one of us. This divine peace that he possessed is the very peace that he exhibited when he carried out his earthly ministry. And he, the God of all creation, was rejected while he was here on earth. He was humiliated. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was tortured, nailed to that tree on Calvary. And in the midst of all of that rejection, even though he was the Holy Son of God, he remained calm. He was never overwhelmed by it. He remained at peace. And the word of God says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
he did not threaten. And that's because he was God. He was the embodiment of peace. And he, the Prince of Peace, gives that promise to us that he has extended his very peace to us. Therefore, we are enabled and we are empowered to stand against the midst, stand in the midst of the trials of this world and remain at peace and not revile others when they revile us, not threaten others when we were suffering because of their mistreatment of us. Jesus Christ remained calm in the midst of all of that. And we're empowered to do the same by him. After Jesus Christ explains those inspired truths to those disciples, he goes on to say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Now here, in verse 27, he draws another distinction He draws a distinction between the peace of the world and the everlasting peace that he promises to all believers. And that distinction is this, that the peace that the world offers is not a true peace. It is not an enduring peace. The peace that the world offers is a fake peace. It's an artificial peace. It's a counterfeit peace. It's a temporary peace. It is a peace that amounts to all of the coping mechanisms that the world offers to human beings here on earth in order to provide them with temporary relief from their challenging circumstances. And those coping mechanisms, they come in a myriad of forms in this world. They come in the form of psychotherapy. When individuals are challenged, they go to see a psychiatrist to talk about their problems and get some help. Those coping mechanisms come in the form of substance abuse, whether it's the use of alcohol to assuage the minds of human beings, whether it's the use of medication to assuage them and provide them with temporary relief from their problems. Those coping mechanisms come in the form of relationships that we try to draw some, draw some degree of joy and peace from on a temporary basis. Those coping mechanisms that the world offers come in the form of false religions and false teachings that people are drawn to in order to try and experience some peace from the problems that they experience in this world. And Jesus Christ here draws a distinction between those temporary reliefs that the world offers. And he says that that is not what he offers. What he offers is his very own peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that comes from the transcendent Father in heaven, the peace that comes from him, the Prince of Peace, the embodiment of peace, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He gives his peace to us. And after he explained that to those disciples in the upper room, he then goes on to say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give it to you. He says to them, let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now here, with that statement in verse 27, He is issuing a command to those disciples and to each and every one of us because in the Greek, that particular statement is in the imperative form. So it's a command. So he says to them, do not let your heart be troubled, 
nor let it be fearful. It's a command to each and every one of us and them to not allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by the challenges in this world, to not allow our hearts to be troubled, to not allow ourselves to be afraid, for he is with us and he has given us his very peace. But although he's given each and every one of us his peace, as believers, we are also responsible for pursuing that peace. So this is also a command to pursue his peace because it says in Psalm 34, 14, seek peace and pursue it. So we as believers in God, we are commanded to pursue the peace of God. And here Jesus Christ commands those disciples in the upper room to pursue his peace. And the question remains then, how do you pursue the peace of God, the peace of Christ? Well, you pursue it by living a righteous life according to the word of God. You pursue it by living a life according to the Holy Scriptures. You pursue it to living a life according to the very words that God breathed into the minds of those apostles. You pursue it by living according to God's righteous standards. Because when you do the opposite, when you don't live according to God's word, which is defined as sin, then your conscience, your conscience accuses you. And as your conscience accuses you, you have no peace with God. And the psalmist David, King David, spoke about this accusing conscience in Psalm 32, 3. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 32, 3. Once you're there, you will see that King David, after he had committed the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, he refused to confess his sin to God. And because he refused to confess and repent, he cries out to God in Psalm 32, 3. And he affirms the truth. He says, when I was silent about my sin, my bones wasted away with groaning all day long. For every day and night, your hand was upon me. This is the hand of God accusing his conscience, not allowing him to rest in the peace of God that King David had as a believer in him. And it wasn't until King David confessed his sin and repented for that extramarital affair that he entered into with Bathsheba. It wasn't until then that his conscience was at peace with God. It wasn't until then that God forgave him and restored him back into his perfect peace. So how do you pursue the peace of Jesus Christ? By living according to the word of God, by living according to the scriptures, by submitting to him and being obedient to the very words and to the very commands and all the principles and precepts that Jesus Christ taught throughout his entire ministry. This is how you do not let your heart be troubled or let it be afraid. This is how you rest in the peace of God and what enables you to pursue that righteousness, what enables you to live righteously. It's those means of grace that we talk about. It's accessing the grace of God through the practice of your spiritual disciplines, through the consistent praying to God, 
through the consistent reading of his word, through the consistent coming together and fellowshipping with other believers in church like you are doing today and every Sunday forward. For when the question is asked of me, asked of me why should we come to church, I have one simple answer. Hebrews 10.25, where God says, do not forsake the assembly of the believers as some are in the habit of doing. Why should we come to church? Because God has commanded us to gather together, assemble with other believers, and worship him. And once we do that, he honors it and blesses us with so many other blessings here within the church. But this is how we pursue the peace of God through the practice of those spiritual disciplines, through those means of grace. And once we pursue that on a daily basis, communing with God, delighting in his word, as the psalmist says, then we are allowed to rest in his peace and not be overwhelmed with worry, with anxiety. Whether we are challenged from a health standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, from a societal standpoint, we have the peace of Jesus Christ in us, for he lives with us. And Jesus Christ affirms these truths and confirms it to those disciples in the upper room and to each and every one of us. And he goes on to say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Then in verse 28 there in chapter 14, he says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Now when he issues those faithful words that he is going away, he is simply reaffirming the truth that he, the promised Messiah, was going to die. He is reaffirming the truth that he had previously revealed to those apostles and disciples in that upper room, that he, their beloved master, was going to sacrifice himself on the cross for the sins of the world. And his sacrificial death was the ultimate goal of his incarnation. His sacrificial death on the cross for sinners and for those who God has elect onto salvation, that was the chief and primary and ultimate goal of him coming down out of the glory of heaven onto earth, wrapping himself in human flesh, taking on a human nature, still remaining fully God, yet being fully man, subjecting himself to the rejection that he received here on earth because he knew that the ultimate goal was exactly what he was explaining to those disciples. The ultimate goal was his death upon the cross, his going away, and his future ascension into heaven. And Jesus Christ had previously revealed this truth to them. He says so in Matthew 17, 22. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew 17, 22. Now in Matthew 17, 22, you will see Jesus Christ as he is gathered with Galilee with those disciples. He reveals to them and says to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And 
but he will rise on the third day. He will be raised on the third day. So here he had revealed to those disciples that he, their beloved master, was going to die. And he reaffirms that truth there in verse 28 when he says, you heard me say to you, I am going away. And then he says, and I will come to you. And when he says, I will come to you, he is speaking to the fact that he will not leave them as orphans. He will not abandon them. He was going to return to them by the Holy Spirit in addition to at the rapture. So this is the promise of his return to those disciples by the Holy Spirit of God. For the Spirit of God emanates from both God the Father and the Son. So here Jesus Christ promises to those disciples that once he dies and ascends into heaven, he has entered into a covenant with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, that once he is exalted to the right hand of God, that they have agreed to send their very spirit and return back to those disciples and indwell them and live with them and comfort them and provide for them. And that promise is to us also. And Jesus Christ had promised them and spoken those words to them early on in this chapter while they were in the upper room in verse 23. When in verse 23, if you look at verse 23, he says to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. And he says, and make our home with him. So that's Jesus Christ further affirming the truth that the Holy Spirit of God emanates from both the Father and the Son. And when someone submits to Jesus Christ, they come and they indwell that person. So we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead living within us, comforting us, giving us their peace, guiding us, providing for us. What a great heritage we have as saints of the Most High God. Amen? How Jesus Christ, in addition to promising to return to them by the Holy Spirit, it was also a promise to return to believers at the rapture. For the Bible speaks to the fact that when the rapture happens, all believers who are alive on earth at that point in time will be called up in the clouds with Jesus Christ, and he will then take them to heaven. And earlier on in the upper room, in verse 3, Jesus Christ spoke those very truths to the disciples. When you look at verse 3, you'll see that he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That is a promise that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, he went and prepared a place for each and every one of us who are believers. And he has guaranteed that we're alive, if we're alive here on earth when the rapture happens, that we will be called up in the clouds and he will take us to heaven to be with him in that place in heaven that he has prepared for each and every one of us. 
and being that the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment in time. It can happen in the twinkling of an eye. It could happen today at this moment or tomorrow if it happens. For each and every one of us who are believers, we have this promise to hold on to, that we would be caught up in the clouds with our blessed Lord and Savior, and he will take us to be with him in heaven. What comforting words we find from Jesus Christ and as he speaks them to those disciples. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Now, those words aren't as comforting as the other words that he spoke to those disciples. Because those words are a rebuke to those disciples. Jesus Christ, with that statement, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. With that statement, he reproves them. He reprimands them. Because he, being the omniscient one, knew that their perspective on his going away, their perspective on his death on the cross, was not a divine perspective. Their perspective on his death was a self-centered, selfish perspective for all that they could think about when they came to understand that Jesus Christ, their beloved master, was going to die. All they could think about was the fact that they were going to be losing their comforter. They were going to be losing their teacher. They were going to be losing the one that they had walked with for three years, the one that had lovingly and tenderly provided for them, the one who had provided for them spiritually, emotionally, physically. So they became anxious, confused, and they were hurt by the fact that he was going to die. And Jesus Christ reprimands them for it here. And he says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So he admonishes them to correct their perspective and to view his death and his future ascension from the divine perspective. And that is the perspective that when Jesus Christ dies upon the cross, it will encapsulate the ultimate goal of his incarnation. When he dies upon the cross, he will reconcile sinners and those who are lost onto God the Father. And once he dies on the cross, God would then raise him from the dead. He would spend 40 days there in those streets in Jerusalem appearing to others and then ascend into heaven. He would ascend into the right hand of God. He would ascend and be exalted into the throne room of God. He will ascend back to his proper place of glory. He will ascend back to the proper worship that he once knew, the worship that he received from all of the heavenly hosts, all of the cherubims and the seraphims and everything that is in heaven, everything that exists to glorify and worship him. It is this glory that he was returning to. And he admonishes those disciples to look at his death and his ascension from that perspective. Because Jesus Christ, while he was here on earth, longed to return back to the Father. 
for while he was here on earth, he was mistreated. He was rejected. He was spat upon. He was mocked. His flesh was ripped beyond human comprehension. And then he was separated from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity. He was separated from that intimate, eternal communion, that intimate, eternal fellowship that he had always had with the Father. It is this intimate fellowship that he speaks about in John 17, 5. Please turn your Bibles to John 17, 5. Now there in John 17, 5, you will see the high priestly prayer that Jesus Christ lifted up to his Father in heaven towards the end of his earthly ministry when he knew that his mission here on earth was coming to a close. He looked forward to returning back to the glory that he once knew with his Father in heaven. And as a part of that prayer in verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I once had with you before the world existed. It is this glory that Jesus Christ was ascending back to. This glory that he once knew before the world existed, before God spoke the entire world into creation, before he gave life to you and I, before he gave life to everything in this world. Jesus Christ existed with God the Father in heaven. He existed and he shared intimate relationship with him, intimate communion with him. And he gave up that intimate communion under their covenant to come to earth to die for our sins that we may be reconciled back to him. And he longed to return back to that glory. So he admonishes those disciples to look to his ascension from a divine perspective of him returning back to his enthronement in heaven. And after Jesus Christ admonishes them. He says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. And he says, for the Father is greater than I. Now, when he says the Father is greater than I, this is not a statement of inferiority. This is not a statement attesting to the nature of Jesus Christ. This particular scripture, which has been misinterpreted by so many errant theologians, by so many errant denominations, so many errant cults of Christianity that would seek to reduce Jesus Christ from his position of being deity, from his position of being co-equal with God. This particular statement is not a statement of his nature. This statement issued forth by Jesus Christ is a statement of submission. It's not a statement about his nature. It's a statement about his role. And his role was one of submitting to God the Father in heaven 
For that's the agreement that they had entered into. That when he came onto earth, that he would submit to God as his son and he would do his will. And as Jesus Christ carried out his earthly ministry, that's exactly what he did. He submitted to God the Father and did only what the Father directed him to do. And in doing so, he gave us this great example of submission. And in the same way that he submitted to the Father, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we should submit to the Father. We should submit to the Father, for he and he alone is God. We should submit to the Father, for he is the one who sacrificed his son for us. We should submit to the Father, for he is the one who has given us his very peace. We should submit to the Father, for he is the one that that has breathed his life into us upon this day. He is the one who has given us eternal life in him. We should submit to him in the same way that Jesus Christ did. We should submit to him fully. We should submit to him daily. We should submit to him righteously, for he has been so very good to us. Amen? And if you are with us today and you have not submitted to the Father by believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not submitted to the transcendent Father of all creation, the one who sacrifices only Son in order that he may reconcile us back to him and accept us, as his children once again. If you are present with us and you are still in the position of rebelling against God, of refusing to live according to his word, of being an enemy of God, of waging war against him because of your pride, if up until this point in your life you have rejected Jesus Christ, I encourage you to turn from your rebellion and to turn to God, submit to him, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this very day, that you may receive the peace that surpasses all understanding, that you may receive the free gift of salvation that is only offered through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I commend you to run from the wrath that God has stored up for you, that wrath of condemnation in hell. Go to his peace that awaits you through Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about those truths, you can see me or Jason or Jim, or we also have a prayer room after the service. You can go there, and if you are concerned about any challenges in this world, You can have some faithful, dear saints pray with you. Access those means of grace that God has given to us and also encourage you in these truths. Please do so if God has moved your heart to do so this morning. Amen? Amen. Thank you.